Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of the Creative Minority. Today we are rejoined by our dear brother, Brother Tamim Mubayad. Um, many people have loved uh, our podcast with you on the science of social engineering. So it's always glad to have you back. Thank you, Tamim. Thank you very much for having me back. It is a, it's, a, it's a pleasure and an honor to have a chance to be back here and especially to talk about uh, the great man, uh, Alia Izetbegovic. And so today we, we are going to talk about one of the greatest freedom fighters um, in the Muslim world in the 20th century, a man who does not get enough exposure um, within, within our generation, especially with the work that he did with founding a country. And um, I speak as somebody who has read some of the literature, who is somewhat acquainted with the, the history of the 20th century and Muslims, but he is still a figure that I don't know much about, despite my limited research. Um, so before we get into it, Tamim, uh, uh, give us just a background as to your inspiration, as to you know your studies into Alia Izabegovic and why you feel so passionate and why you think people really need to know about this remarkable figure. Sure. Um, I think the first point was, you know, kind of being a 90s kid, in, especially in Europe, you know, a Muslim in Europe. Uh, we had a lot of talk about the Bosnian war. In fact, one of my earliest memories, and Allahu Alam, if it's real or maybe it's constructed memory, you know, retrospectively it came in, was seeing on the news the concentration camps um, in Bosnia, or, or four Bosnians that were set up by Serbs. And that would have been when I was very young, but that was one of the, you know, searing images. It's one of the most famous images, uh, I guess, from the news in the early, sorry, mid mid 90s. Uh, my mom actually wrote an Arabic novel on the 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 the, the, the war as well, called Hilal fi Suluj al Balkan, the, the crescent in the snows of the Balkans. So that was something that, you know is very much in our childhood. And I know I'm not alone in in kind of that being part of the Muslim experience, especially for European Muslims or Western Muslims. Um, my dad was also somebody who would have you know he he does and still speaks very highly of him, and you know. One of the, the dearest sheikhs to me, Sheikh Mu'az al-Khatib in Syria, he was also somebody who very much spoke about Ali Ezebegovic in, you know, and, you know, giving him a lot of honor. So there was obviously something already there. Mm -hmm. And then I guess, you know, last year I, I decided to kind of brush up a little bit. I read his autobiography and I'll be honest, uh, Brother Ahmad, at the time I kind of just took it in. And I was, you know, I was amazed by it and I was impressed by a lot of things. But it was really then when I came back to my notes again for this podcast, it really just hit me, mm -hmm. the stature of the man. We have people who are fighters and may Allah, you know, reward them. We have people who are scholars and may Allah reward them. And we have people who sacrificed so much for the, you know, for their communities. He was a rare, I guess, rare breed. I know you mentioned a few of the names, uh, I guess, when we were chatting before. Um, he's a rare breed in that he is at the crossroads between these different vital, you know, uh, positions that, you know, I, I think Muslims, especially Western Muslims need. I know we'll talk a little bit about his, the, the book that he wrote, but that was an intellectual, that was a, you know, that was a courageous intellectual effort at, you know, situating Islam with, you know, between materialism and the philosophies of, of the time of, I guess, the, the 20th century. Also, I guess, what you know, the war, the burden that he had to carry for his people and for Muslims in general um, with what happened in Bosnia. And he carried it magnificently. Um, is it, I guess they're, they're just two of the two of the two of the the reasons why this man has such stature. And it really, yeah, as I was saying, it really hit me then just how unique uh, and special he was when I was thinking back over his life and what he did. So for, so for those who don't know, Aliyah Izabegovic was the founder of modern-day Bosnia um, and was a great philosopher, intellectual, who lived a very difficult life, but a life filled with meaning um, in his struggle for his pursuit. And what he really tried doing is he realized that he was Muslim and they were Muslim inside the West. And they were living in a time of communism, which I'm sure Tamim will get into later. And he realized that, you know, he needed to do something for his people because with the rise of all these ideologies, massacres and stuff of that nature could happen and which inevitably did happen. Um, 
and so Tamim, um, if you could give a, a biography, um, a quick biography, a, a brief biography into his life and to the pivotal moments, um, I think that would really situate uh, and also pro uh, perhaps provide some context into the era that he was living in. I think with through that angle, we'll be able to really deeply understand one of the great figures in Islamic history. Inshallah. Um, I'll try to do it some justice, but I'll try not to, you know, you know, take too much time as well. So he was born in on the 8th of August, 1925. And I was kind of struck a little bit, I mean, without diverting into this, that he was born 81 days after the birth of Malcolm X. So they were kind of close to, you know, being born around the same time. And if only they could have worked together um, had uh, Malcolm X's life not been cut short. He was born uh, for, I guess, his family roots were Bosnian and also Turkish. I, I believe his grandfather was the mayor of the town that he lived in. His grandfather was also called Alia, so he had maybe this uh, this in his blood. Um, he talks about his childhood in, in his autobiography. He talks about a beautiful scene in his childhood where his mom, he, he talks about his religion coming from his mom. He talks about his mom being a very pious woman and owing a lot of his religion in, in part to her. He describes this scene of waking up, you know, being woken up by his mom when he was 12 to 14 years old, walking to the mosque to pray Fajr and the Imam. Uh, he would always recite Surah Rahman and he would talk about walking home then from that. I think it's, 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 it's interesting to know that it wasn't, you know, just a childhood of, you know, uh, let's say unchallenged Islam. He then talks about, I, I guess, around 15 years old, his faith being challenged. And the beauty in this is that, so, yeah, sorry, just to put it in the context, at the time when he was growing up, there would have been, the, you know, World War II would have been happening in and around Europe. And uh, there was a struggle, I guess, within Bosnia between fascism and uh, communism. And he talks about kind of them being typified by Hitler on one side and Stalin on the other. Of course, then the Balkans get their own um, version of, of, of a authoritarianism um, later on. But yeah, he talks about, I, I guess, the school being communist and a lot of the teachers being communist uh, and his faith challenge being challenged. But the beauty of it, and I think this is maybe pertinent for Muslims living in non-Muslim communities, is that he talks then about coming back to his faith, faith after that challenge mm. and the beauty of it being his own. So he he struggled and he decided to come back. So he writes he writes that, you know, he writes about it as being a, a process of him gaining ownership over his religion. Um, he dodges the draft. Uh, obviously, he doesn't want to fight uh, in World War II, um, I guess, for, the, you know, the different breeds of authoritarianism that would have been around then. But in 1946, then just after the World War, he's arrested for the first time. He gets involved with a group called the Young Muslims, who are essentially trying to revive the Islamic spirit among Muslims in Bosnia. Now, it's, it's crucial that this idea of among Muslims, throughout his life and throughout his writings and his practice, he was never one for enforcing religion on other people. And he held his democratic values very highly. And he talks about them being European values, but he critically mentions that they were Islamic values long mm. before they were European values. And he, he, he writes quite eloquent, eloquently that Europe, you know, staggered towards these ideals. And it's praiseworthy that they got there. But in his words, Europe thinks too highly of itself as well, that some of these values were, were around long before. Uh, so, yeah, he's involved with the, the young Muslims and he ends up getting arrested for the first time. He is uh, arrested and he, he ends up spending three years in prison. And there's just one beautiful note then, I guess, that relates to our dean, where he talks about uh, not knowing what is good for us and what is bad for us. And this idea, I guess, of the, uh, the spirit, I guess, of Surat Al-Kahf and Musa and Khidr, and this mm -hmm. idea that we don't always know what's good and bad. Had he not been imprisoned in 1946, the next round of uh, imprisoning that happened for the Muslims in Bosnia, well, it was against the Muslims and some other groups. The leaders then were killed. So he, he actually says that had he not been arrested in 1946 and been arrested with the next batch in 1949, he would have likely been killed. Um, he then goes, he, he gets released from prison. He finishes law school and he works as, a, I guess, a law uh, uh, consultant. And he also works in the construction trade, as far as I understand from his autobiography. In 1969, 1970, so he, he's, a, he's a man who's very involved in his community and very concerned about his community. He publishes uh, a, a text called the Islamic Declaration. Now, this was a text 
that was directed again towards Muslims of his era and in his locality, but it's a trying to revive the Islamic spirit there. He's living under a communist rule, so of course religion is not something that's tolerated. Just to take a quote from his autobiography, the dominant idea of the declaration, okay, the Islamic declaration, the text that he's talking about, is that only Islam can awaken the can reawaken the imagination of the Muslim masses and render them capable of being once again active participants in their own history. Again, this is an idea that's very common among Muslims living, I guess, in the quote unquote West. Uh, and it's, it's, actually, sorry, no, it's it's just as relevant for Muslims. It's probably even more relevant for mm -hmm. Muslims living yeah. in Muslim lands as well. This idea of Islam being an, uh, a bestower of honor and a straight a straightener out and a, a means of elevation. And you, I, I guess at the beginning, you know, in our pre-podcast chat, you mentioned colonialism and we can't separate, I guess, colonialism with uh, the idea or the, the, the movement to denature Islam. So I think the Islamic declaration was an attempt to revive that. He, get, he ends up getting arrested for it later on. So I guess one of the things to keep in mind is that in, the, in, 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 the Yuga, in Yugoslavia, sorry, I haven't even mentioned that he's not actually living in Bosnia at the time, it's Yugoslavia. So Yugoslavia is one uh, nation at this stage. Uh, there was fluctuations in, in terms of how difficult things would be for Muslims and for other groups of people. Um, he's arrested for the second time in 1983, and this time he, 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 sta he stays in prison for five years, although his sentence was much longer. Um, there's quite a beautiful passage again when he's in, uh, he's in court, he's, he's on trial the second time. And this is again highlighting that he wasn't somebody who was anti-Yugoslavia. He was, he was all on board with it being Yugoslavia as long as it was an ethical and uh, mm -hmm. friendly place to live. So this is this was his his uh, his speech in in court. I love Yugoslavia, but it's not in gov but not its government. I bestow all my love on freedom, and there is nothing left over for the authorities. I am not being tried for having violated the laws of this land, for I have not done so. I am being tried for having transgressed some in unwritten rules by which individual power holders in our midst impose their own standards of the prohibited and the permissible. He then goes on to say, I am a Muslim and so I shall remain. I consider myself to be a fighter for the cause of Islam in the world and shall, and shall so feel to the end of my days. For Islam for me has been another name for all that is fine and noble, a name for the promise or hope of a better future for the Muslim peoples of the world. This is the kind of political, spiritual um, message that he was really pushing. Um, so he's released then in 1988. Uh, of course, the Berlin Wall falls in 1989. Everything starts changing in Europe. You know, mm -hmm. things are things are, are falling apart. He he founds a political party in 1990 called the SDA. They win the elections um, at the time, and then the following year, 1991, Slovenia and Croatia declare their independence from Yugoslavia, and that is the harbinger for the war, the wars in the Balkans. Um, so he was. This is he pushes. He pushes this idea in his autobiography. He was all for Bosnia remaining within Yugoslavia. He meant that when he said, "I love Yugoslavia," but he was completely against the idea of Croatia being allowed to leave, Slovenia being allowed to leave, and Bosnia then being left, as he called it, a rump to Serbia, because he knew that that would give it, you know. Uh, a, a, a underprivileged status, and he knew that the Serbs then would not treat the Bosniak Muslims well. So, when it came to it, uh, he tried to he 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 moved. He he tried to keep Yugoslavia together. When that fell through, he realized that he needed to then protect his people. 1992, the war in Bosnia breaks out. Uh, it lasts from 1992 to 1996, 1995. Sorry, the Dayton Accord peace accords happen to bring peace to Bosnia. Of course, I'm sure we'll talk about the war and some of the some of the, the specifics of the war, but it was a brutal war. Uh, it was a terrifying war. And of course, there's some discourse now in the media where we're seeing people talking about Ukraine and nothing in Europe happening like Ukraine since World War II, and people then coming in, correcting them and saying, well, what about the Bosnian war? Just one fact there that comes to mind is, you know, the, the, the rape of between 20,000 and 50,000 
Bosnian Muslim women as, as part of the, as, you know, during the war. And that not only highlights the brutality of the war, it highlights the religious element of the war. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad's uh, writings on that, but I, I hope we'll, we're able to come to it later. I'll just, you know, try to wrap up the, the, the biography. Yeah, finish the biography first. Sure. In 1995, they signed the Dayton Peace Accords. These are, like any peace accords, they are flawed. Um, and we're seeing that now with what's going on in Bosnia. Uh, in 1996, he wins the election. Then again, he's the president, but he has a heart attack. He's, in, in 2000, he steps down from the presidency. And then in 2003, October 19th, to be specific, he returned to his Lord, inshallah, from, the, from among the highest of the shuhada. That's a brief uh, biography of Ustaz uh, Shahid Aliya Ezebegovic. And so thank you for that biography to me. Um, there's a number of important angles. Uh, now that I think we've kind of situated um, where he was, um, the, fa the famous book that he wrote even before he was a president, which was titled Islam Between East and West. And I think, I think we just need to pause right there and think about how beautiful the name of the book is and what he was trying to get at when he said Islam Between East and West. Because I think... In, in, in most people's perceptions, Islam is an Eastern religion, which is alien to the West. But the more people study Islamic history, the more they'll realize that Islam thrived in both the Eastern lands and also in the West. I mean, Islam was in Spain for over 600 years. Islam was in Southern France. It was in Seville. It was, I mean, it was in Sicily. The Ottoman Empire controlled much of Europe for hundreds of years. 10% of Russia is Muslim, right? So I think the, the more, and now if you're looking, now you're looking at it in today's age, they're saying by 2050, UK will be like 10 or 11% Muslim. Germany will be like 10% Muslim. Sweden will be like 10% Muslim. So Islam is both an Eastern and a Western religion. And uh, 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 Alia Izabegovic is, is a great example of somebody who's situated in the West who's saying I am a Muslim living in the West and I don't see these things as being contradictory, that I am both a Muslim and I'm both in the East, but he's situated in an area where he doesn't really have much Muslim support. He's really isolated in the West and he has to deal with Serbia. He has to deal with um, the, the Soviet Union and he has all these states around him. And to me, it's almost like he's like a lone wolf trying to trying to fight this battle himself. Yeah, I think the idea of him, you know, placing Islam and, and showing it as something that is European is beautiful and so important for, for, for Western Muslims. He was unabashedly European and he was unabashedly Muslim and he never seen a, you know, kind of a conflict between those two things. And his book, as you mentioned, yeah, Islam between East and West. I'll be honest, I read it when I was 18, 18, 19, and it went quite, it, it, it went over my head, I think a little bit at the time. I've read a little bit more about it since then. And I think the, the core idea is that he's, trying to situate Islam as being the middle way between uh, materialism and, I guess, other other ways of thinking and seeing Islam as being something that has differences, but also something that can be shared with all of humanity. In terms of him being alone, now, I think he, he, he carried a lot on his shoulders, and you see that in the conclusion of his autobiography. There's a real weight to his words. This is not a tri He's not a triumphalist. He, you know, he, he didn't... He, he succeeded, but he didn't win. And I think you see that in, you know, the Bosnian war wasn't won. They didn't lose, but I don't think you could say that they won. Um, but coming back to the idea of him being alone, well, I think in some ways every leader is alone. But he credits two things for the ability to, to resist Serbia during the war. Number one is the no-fly zone, which was given by NATO. And number two was actually the arming from the OIC states. So the Muslim world at this time actually did something that was, you know, unfortunately less heard of in our times is that they united on this cause. He talks about Saudi Arabia helping. He talks about Iran helping. He talks about fighters coming from different parts of the world. So this was and even Samuel Hunt, Huntington, famously, you know, of the Clash of Civilizations thesis. He talks about Bosnia being a universal cause for the Muslim world. So it's recognized that, it, it, you know, it was something that brought Muslims together. But again, you're very right. At the end of the day, he was the leader and he had a huge burden to carry. And he carried it. And I guess it took its toll on him. But inshallah, that 
elevates his rank on you know mm -hmm. in terms of the afterlife um, but it, it couldn't have been easy and it wasn't an easy war and i can't imagine i mean can you imagine being responsible for your people and as nasty a war as that being inflicted on them it doesn't matter how much you succeed or how difficult the cards are stacked against you i think it would be a heavy heavy burden on anyone mm -hmm. and definitely sitting it, it would sit in someone's psyche as well especially when you see the atrocities like what what was it really worth it right um but what's interesting is like you have a country like pakistan who sent soldiers out you know i i, I have testimonies from bosnians um from their parents and grandparents that during the war you know there were pakistani soldiers living in the house with them pakistani soldiers living uh, underground in the basement um so uh and there was this long thread on twitter i'll see if i can find it showing the the help that they tried doing but you're right in that the bosnian war was one war where the muslim world was united and i think partly for that reason it was because almost again the situation of east and west of all of the east is on one team and all of the west is another team and now all of the West is working together to attack Bosnia. And so now we, have, we must claim our brethren. Whereas, um, you know, if, if a Muslim country starts beating on another Muslim country, it's almost like it's a problem within the family and just let the family deal with it. Sure. And, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be cynical and maybe I don't want to go too much into politics, but I think there was an allowance. There was room given for Muslims to unite behind this cause because it wasn't actually against a Western country. It was against Serbia. And Serbia, we can, we can despise Milosevic, we can despise all of the war criminals that came out of there, but we also need to acknowledge the fact that that's part of the equation as well, that this was an enemy of the West. So because it was a country that was unfavor, you know, unfavorable in, the, in Western eyes, there was more of an allowance there for, for Muslims to kind of back the, 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 the Bosnian cause. But mm -hmm. despite that, there was an arms embargo for most of the war. And that's mentioned by Ali Ezebegovic as being a big hindrance because essentially you have two armies. You have the J JNA, which is the Serbian army, which I believe was the fourth largest standing army in Europe at the time. And you had the Bosnian people, which didn't have an army. This wasn't the country until 1991. They mm -hmm. didn't have an official army. They didn't have weapons. So he talks about this. So when you put an arms embargo, so NATO put an arms embargo in, uh, under, the, under the, the pretense of it being against the conflict, but you are essentially then supporting the Serbian army by doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's one, of the, that's one of the factors that he talks about. Now, in, again, to their credit, he credits, uh, to repeat this point, he credits the no-fly zone as being a big help. And we've seen that in Syria. We've seen that, I guess, in Gaza, what happens when you have one army with a full modern air force and you have the other side that don't even have you know, proper anti-aircraft guns and what can happen. It's essentially a slaughter, whether it's in Syria or whether it's in Israel or wherever it may be. Now, he, yeah, that was one of the, the key factors then that Serbia wasn't able to completely override Bosnia with their air force, but they would have been, they would have been able to, I guess, if there wasn't that no-fly no zone there. Anyway, we veered a little bit into politics with that. But it's so it's, apologies, it's so, some of the parallels are just so forthcoming. We could talk about the siege of Sarajevo, and the tunnels that were constructed to get out of Sarajevo, of course, then we think about Gaza. Of course, we think about Aleppo. Of course, we think about so many different cases where Muslim cities have been besieged in a brutal way and having to literally dig, dig under the ground to try to kind of eke out uh, a, a means to resistance and a means to live as well. This was, these were tunnels that were used not only to, to resist, but also for food. And I'm told that one of the, one of the, the best tours to go on if you go to Sarajevo now is a tour that shows you some of those tunnels. Um, but that's not the only parallel. I mean, we can talk about parallels, but maybe I don't want to. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you know, if you go to Sarajevo right now, you'll still see all the bullet holes and all the mosques and all the buildings. You can, you can see the bullet holes there. And I think one of the things that a lot of us fail to realize is this was a war that just happened. It's not something that happened 100, 200, 300 years ago. This, many of us were alive when this war happened. And our parents were, all of our parents were alive and reading the news when this incident happened. And you just, if you just mentioned yeah. to your parents about Bosnia and the war, they can tell you exactly what happened. So it's something which just occurred. And the reason why this discussion is so pertinent is because now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, 
now there's talks of what the situation of Bosnia is going to be, whether or not Bosnia joins the NATO and then is Russia going to invade Bosnia? And is this cycle just going to repeat? And if it does repeat, what is the Muslim world's response to it? Does the Muslim, does the, how does the, what, what role do they play? Do they take the side of the Bosnians or is there going to be other issues? But because it's Russia, like you mentioned, because it's Russia, the West will give some leeway and maybe even support the Muslims in their cause. Yeah, I think you're right. And you're very right to bring that up, that this is a huge concern now, that the tensions are rising and they have been rising for some time. And this is, this is I, I mentioned the Dayton Peace Accords being flawed. Um, essentially, you know, Bosnia was split into two uh, with two different, you know, sub, uh, what I guess what, you know, areas that would be governed. One of them essentially by Muslims and one of them essentially by Christian Bosnians uh, or Bosnian Serbs, sorry. And uh, one of the problems with that, so that was Ali Azebegovic was against that. He did not want the ethnic divide of Bosnia. He did not want the sectarianization of Bosnia. But unfortunately, whether it's in Lebanon or whether it's in Northern Ireland, when you have these post-conflict societies, this is usually one of the ways, this is usually one of the facts, the factors of the peace accords is that to protect, I guess, to, to make sure all minorities have representation, the system becomes sectarianized. But when you do that, you, it's kind of, it becomes then a, a kind of self-feeding flame where you're essentially dividing people up and labeling them by their, 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 their group. And it can then exacerbate those tensions. And yes, as you mentioned, Russia has been, at the forefront of uh, protecting uh, the Serbian cause at the expense of the Bosnian cause. And this goes back to, if you read Abdul Hakim Murad's uh, chapter, I believe it's chapter four from his latest book, he talks about the religious roots of Serbian nationalism and the relationship it has with the Orthodox Church and also the silence of the likes of the Anglican Church in the UK during the Bosnian War. That there was something, there was something very religious it was a very strongly religious element to what was going on. And of course, this goes back then to the Ottoman, the days of mm -hmm. Ottoman, the Balkans as being under the Ottoman Empire. And um, we could talk about that for a long time, I guess. Yeah, but, so, you so, know. So, so, so in a nutshell, so in the book, um, uh, in the chapter, uh, Dr. Abdul Hakim Arad in his book, Traveling Home, he, he goes into the history between the, uh, the war between Bosnia and Serbia. And what he does is he traces back um, the the sentiments from Serbia uh, from Serbians as to as to scapegoat the Bosnians for their problems and one of the things that he mentions is that the Serbians have created this narrative that when the Ottoman Empire was expanding um, in, in, into Serbia there was actually a Bosnian at that time who betrayed the Serbians and allowed the Ottomans to conquer them and the Serbians have created this perception that since then the Bosnians have always been our enemies. They've always been people we couldn't trust. And so when the, when, when the tensions are leading up to the war, this narrative is always being fueled because every, every, every government uh, um, has their own narrative. Hitler had his narrative, the way he saw history and the people he blamed. Uh, the Nation of Islam, they had their own narrative as well as to who to blame for all the world's, uh, uh, for the history of, 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 their, of their struggle. And the Serbians had the same thing. And so... I think a lot of people don't realize that the problems between the Serbians and Bosnians, particularly from the Serbian side, is traced back centuries based on this narrative. But what Abdul Hakim Arad mentions in his book is that the narrative is incorrect. That's actually not real. But that's the this is I think this is the this is a struggle and this is the problem when governments utilize these narratives. You know, these populists. You know, Trump did an excellent job at that, uh, portraying this history as. America being great, and as one of my teachers, uh, Imam Zaid Shakir, uh, when teaching us this chapter, said that uh, he said he said, "What era of America was he talking about? When was America ever great? Like, was it during slavery? Was it during the Civil War? Was it during the World Wars?" So um, it's it, tracing back the history. I think that's why history is so is so important, is that you trace back the history to identify the root cause um, and. Just to go on a slight tangent, I think this is this is another problem that we're dealing with right now is in India, where the Hindufta have created their own narrative, tracing back Mughal history and saying the Mughal rulers were always oppressive to the to Hindus, whether it be Aurangzeb or so forth and their oppression. And so now the perception is that Muslims have always been oppressing us. And so that's why I feel that in today's age, a correct understanding of Mughal history 
can not only combat that narrative, but if that narrative is combated, then the tensions can also be uh, combated as well. And I think the same thing is applicable with Bosnia, is that now if, if, the, if, the, if the narrative can be deconstructed and dismantled, then it will be much easier for the sentiments to, uh, to drop because now Allahu A'lam what's going on with Serbia and Bosnia. And I'm saying this as somebody who is in contact with uh, Bosnians and their parents back home who are explaining that, you know, we, we're, we're terrified of these tensions that might flare up again. And I mean, and just as a last point, subhanAllah, just think about this, bro. Because this war is so recent, you have many people who, you know, Allah forbid, if a war does break out, who already experienced the first war. SubhanAllah. Think about that. Yeah, it's, 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 you're, you're very right to highlight how recent it is. I mean, I remember speaking to a colleague who told me he was from Bosnia. And I don't know why. I just said, do you remember the war? I shouldn't have, you know, I shouldn't have brought that up. And he said, yeah, I was 16 during the war. And he was a, he was a young guy. Um, and you remember everything at 16. Um, you mentioned the power of the stories and the, the importance of challenging these. And there's probably no two more important examples of the, the danger of this Serbian narrative than Anders Brevik, who, the, the, you know, the, the butcher in Scandinavia, who mentioned Serbs as being, as, as being an example to follow. And so just, Zealand, just explain, explain Anders Brevik a little bit more. Anders Brevik was a white nationalist, you know, fascist uh, killer who... who I can't remember which Scandinavian country, but he went to the Labour Party children's camp, essentially, and started murdering uh, uh, Scandinavian children um, because of, you know, his, his feeling that the left was bringing about this, I guess, you know, themes of the, re the great replacement theory and all that kind of stuff. And he, he mentions the Serbs as being one example, you know, to be followed for what they did to the, you know, Bosnian Muslims. And of course, the New Zealand mosque murderer, um, he also, he was singing Chetnik, Chetnik songs, you know, Chetnik songs are the songs of, I guess, uh, traditional Serbian songs um, that were sung during the Bosnian war. And he was singing them as he was, you know, murdering Muslims. Um, that's the power of these stories. And, you know, it's not just some abstract uh, worry that, you know, these stories can, can, can perhaps influence attitudes. They also lead to, you know, kind of dangerous behaviors. Um, you mentioned as well Abdul Hakim Murad. One of the interesting aspects of the narrative of the Serbians is that they, 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 they accept that Bosnian Muslims want to have peace. This is really this is what I found really interesting. Abdul Hakim Murad's book, in, in that chapter, he, he he paints a picture of the Serbs knowing that the Muslims want peace, but they 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 describe that as being like the smile of Judas that they'll betray them. Mm. And that idea of Muslims wanting peace is something that we see in Ali Azizbegovic's. His, his, his whole approach is that he wanted harmony. He wanted religious coexistence. He wanted this, you know, crosshatch of different ethnicities and different religions living together. Um, the Serbians have incorporated that. You know, not all of them, of course. We're talking about certain extremes here. But it's in Well, it's interesting, you know, just sorry not to, not to you know, go on too much about mm -hmm. it, but Abdul Murad also mentions a poem that was required reading in Serbian schools pre-the pre war in 1992, that was essentially talking about this. It's brutal. I mean, if you if you read that chapter, of course, I recommend you read the whole book. Um, if you read that chapter, you'll see just how entrenched this hatred of Muslims is among Serbian nationalists. And I, I, I you know, I it is it's extreme, but also the, these extremes can be incorporated in the mainstream. And if that was required reading in schools, I guess that's that's dangerous. Uh, and may Allah protect and preserve uh, Imam Zaid Shakir. You're lucky to have mm. studied uh, with him. And I mean that's similar to what you see with uh, the Nazis with uh, with Goebbels, um, who was the education minister, and the, the, the certain books uh, he had placed in the curriculum for children to read about the Jews, right? So get him at get him at a young age, right? Yeah, that was a philosophy. But what's what's very interesting you mentioned about Andres Breivik, uh, who, who was the, the the Scandinavian shooter, and then uh, Brenton Tarrant, who was a New Zealand shooter, is that both of them had cited. Um, the Srebrenica massacre, you know, the, uh, the the massacre of Bosnians, and what's what's quite interesting about that is, usually when you have a massacre, it's usually only the, the thought and sentiments around it are usually only remembered by the victims and the people who are on the side of the victims. But it's interesting that this also lives in their psyche as well. That this is something that they think about repeatedly, and this is one of the things that they hold up as one of their accomplishments 
as one of their defeats. And I think much of this, again, it really ties into like this, 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 this narrative, which really needs to be bunked, which is this clash of civilizations between Islam and Christianity. And undoubtedly there were events in his, in history where Muslims and Christians collided and which seemed like, um, like religious wars, but there were many times, many, many times where uh, Muslims and Christians live peacefully under one another. And what's very interesting is the times where Muslims lived, uh, Muslims and Christians lived under peace, was when uh, was when the Muslims controlled the West. So mm-hmm. when Andalusia, especially in the early periods of Andalusia, um, especially the under uh, Caliph Abdul Rahman. Um, Muslims and Christians and Jews lived all in harmony with one another. Later on, uh, certain problems in Andalusia come up. But early on, they were all in complete harmony. If you look at Sicily, when the Muslims controlled Sicily, they had a great relationship with the Christians. And then when a Roger of Sicily, when the Christians took over Sicily, they still had a great relationship with the Muslims. And you look at the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was known for its religious pluralism with its Jews and Christians. Right. And that's when Islam was in the West. And so I think, uh, I think uh, the last point I mentioned, I know, I know you have so much to say on this, but this is another narrative which I think really needs to be combated, that Islam is a Western religion, just as it's an Eastern religion. And history has proven that Muslims and Christians can live peacefully um, side by side. And the example of this, the perfect exemplar is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, where in Medina he had created he creates the constitution of Medina and he tells everybody we are all we are all on the same team. If anybody comes to attack each one of us, we will work together to fight back. And I think this is where this is this is the example that we need to have. And I think debunking these narratives is much of the work uh, that needs to occur. Yeah, sure. And I think telling the story of Ali Azadbegovic is a great place to start. Why isn't we're telling it? Why why are we not telling it more? We should have five movies about him. We should have like a, a you know a standard biography about him that's out there. We should have like an art house take on him. I mean, these are people that we should know about. And yeah, re- repeating their stories is a great way to dispel the narrative of you know of of of, of the you know extreme Serbian uh, nationalism. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, sorry to interrupt you. I was going to ask you, though, I, I do want to read, of course, I don't want to legitimize, you know, Serbian hate, but I also want to read their grievances against the Ottoman Empire. I would want to know more about that. Um, I remember you may, maybe just briefly scanning over it a little bit. I haven't given it time. I want to see what their grievances are, because I think that's also important. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's very easy for us to look at, you know, the, the, the narrative that we know, or this, you know, the conflict that we know without really getting into the, the details of what the issue was, to see if they do have grievance, le- legitimate grievances or maybe not. Wallahu alam. But on the idea of the Ottomans, um, Ali Azadbegovic mentions them at, at one crucial stage, just to kind of reinforce the idea that you're talking about in terms of coexistence. He wanted, he was against the ethnic, you know, ideas like ethnic cleansing and ethnic reprisal attacks. So during the war, he's this is a, this is a speech from within his autobiography. He's talking to his soldiers during the war, when of course we know the Serbians had a stated agenda to cleanse, you know, the land of Muslims. He said that we can't do this. He talked about um, God presenting them with a painful challenge. We have been slaughtered. Our women and children murdered. Our mosques destroyed. We shall not kill women and children. We shall not destroy churches. Um, and then he goes on to talk about why. So it's not even just about being European. He talks about the Ottoman Empire. In th- it was thanks to this prohibition that in Serbia, the prohibition to destroy religious places that comes directly from the Quran, where the Turks ruled for 400 years and who were not exactly the mildest of people, to this day, the monasteries are still in existence. They remained untouched because it is so written in the book that we respect. It is written that such acts must not be committed and people have observed this. When we do so and when we say that we wish to respect churches and the faith of others, we are not only upholding the finest traditions of European democracy, which the world has slowly groped its way to through the ages, but also directly and literally respecting the precepts of our holy book. I think that's beautiful illustration of many things but number one not compromising your ethics in the midst of a brutal conflict when the enemy is doing you know unthinkable things number two the marriage of 
the best part of European values and Islamic values, the idea of letting others practice their faith openly. Um, number three, I guess, I would say his life and his example can be a living embodiment of some of the prophetic ideal. And I think there's a, there's a lot of this is why we need to tell his story. It's one thing reading about, you know, Islamic values being embodied by the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Sahaba in Medina and in Mecca, you know, one and a half centuries ago. But here we have somebody who was able to apply it 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago in Europe, in the heart of Europe, during the modern era. And he's a, he should be an example for us. Yeah, we, we need to be as if we can't if we can't directly follow his, his, his example, we at least need to be amplifying mm -hmm. and telling his story. But, you know, one of the things that's so striking about uh, Ali Izabegovic is that the sentiments that you just shared um, and reading, you know, a, a, a brief skim through through Islam between East and the West, his book reveals that he was an extremely educated man from a very young age. And that book, Islam between East and West, is a difficult book to read. It's, it's, it's not a difficult book to read. It's a difficult book to understand. And like you mentioned, at a young age, you tried reading it and it went over your head. It was the same thing when, when, I, when I read um, Iqbal's uh, Reconstruction of Religious Thought, which is very similar. There are a lot of similarities between those two books. But when you read, you know, for example, like about Plato, and he talks about like the philosopher king, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you read about this abstract idea of how great it would be if you had somebody who was extremely well-educated and was also a ruler, um, this man seems to fit the bill. And I think it's very easy, uh, you know, as, as, as both of us who are, you know, academics, um, it's very easy to read literature, but to write your own book, to have it so well-known that after he wrote it, before he was president, everybody had known him. And I think, uh, I don't know if this has to do with the success of his book, but what was, what's quite fascinating about him is when he was imprisoned, uh, I believe for the second time, um, and he was sent to jail for 14 years, there were worldwide protests occurring, calling for him to be uh, released from prison. And my question is, is one, how did he get so popular before even being president? And two, did it have to do with his book, even though many of the people that protested weren't even Muslim. Yeah, I think it would have been, you know, his, 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 his book uh, as being the driver for that. I don't know, you know, I don't know how, I don't know the dynamics of how well known he was before then, but I imagine as a political prisoner, um, people would have been willing to take up his cause. I know his book was also translated into English, and that's, I think that, but that might have been a little bit later. Um, maybe it's also just you know you know mag people you know recognizing something sincere in him uh and and and, and in his message um but yeah I, I guess that would be some of the some of some of the, perhaps the drivers of what motivated people you know i'm i'm also thinking you know there would have been a lot of political prisoners in that time under tito mm -hmm. and under communism and under different kinds of, you know, fascism that was occurring in the world. And even within the Muslim world, you know, there was a lot of political prisoners. So, subhanAllah, if he was given some kind of uh, extra, extra um, uh, attention or, 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 or energy, yeah. I, it, to be honest, I'm, it's not something I, I, I know too much about, but that's just some of the reasons I think maybe that could have, could have, could have driven that. And perhaps um, it could also, it could also be the, the idea that, um, you know, you have, you have the Cold War at the time and people in Western countries are saying, you know, a, a lot of it, is, it perhaps might be rooted in the idea that, oh, it's the Soviets who have oppressed, uh, have imprisoned him uh, and communism is to blame. Uh, and for that reason, perhaps it elevated him. But I mean, for him, for, for him to get a sentence of 14 years in jail, reduced to seven because of the, the protests emerging in the West, I mean, the last person that I know of that had something akin to that was Nelson Mandela. And mm. look at look at the stature of someone like Mandela. He's one of the great icons of the 20th century world globally. So for yeah. something like that to happen with Alia Izabegovic, I'm sure during the time of our parents, um, there, there were sentiments like that. But to see it also in the Western world is something which quite fascinates me, which shows that perhaps even they recognize that this was a man who was between East and West.
Mm. I love the fact you brought up Mandela. And of course, they both served long sentences and they both went on to become presidents and icons of their country and real people, you know, who are tied with the history of their of their countries. Um, and there must be something about them. And of course, then maybe, you know, it, it's easy then to see even within our own religious tradition and the idea of Nabi Yusuf and the mm. sacrifices and the toil in prison. Of course, sort of the Yusuf doesn't really talk about his toil, but we could imagine that there was a lot of difficulty by being in prison. With Ali Azadbegovic, he writes about getting very low at certain stages in his, uh, in his imprisonment, becoming very down, but also being offered a chance to be released so long as he basically signed a, 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 um, a, a statement of guilt and he refused to do so. And it's these principles, whether it's, you know, from the, you know, the Quranic example of Yusuf. This is, again, I don't want to, you know, kind of be a broken record, but it's one thing reading about the prophets doing this. And exactly. we think they're prophets. It's not something that we can ever achieve. We have here, again, a European modern example of somebody embodying and living these values. Uh, I think it's very powerful. Um, yeah, so he, 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 he stuck to his principles and he didn't. And of course, he was then released later in a much you know, maybe a better circumstance. And one year later, he would become uh, president of his country. And again, it's not straightforward. He didn't become president and ride off into the sunset happily ever after. Right after that came the biggest challenge of his life. Just one more, sorry, I, I'm just remembering now when I'm talking about Yusuf and the spirit of forgiving his brothers. Two significant times, Ali Ezebegovic embodied this ideal as well. Again, he embodied it in a way that isn't in a you know, in, in, in a religious text, it's in our recent history. So number one, when he gets released from prison, uh, he gets released, you know, he's, he's released from prison. One year later, he's the president. He's asked by a lot of journalists, are there going to be reprisals against the communists? Are there going to be reprisals against the judges who, mm -hmm. who falsely put you in prison? And he said, no. He said, as a politician, I forgave them. As a man, I did not. And he even talks about a lot of them keeping their position so long as they straighten themselves out. That's a huge, imagine just like Yusuf being given the power over the people that oppressed you and forgiving them. And he does it again after the siege of Sarajevo, where, you know, there was, there was Bosnian Serbs in Sarajevo and there was Muslim, Bosnian Muslims in Sarajevo. The, the Serb side are being horrendously brutal in their persecution of Muslims. When they undo the siege and when the tide turns and peace is made, he talks about you know, there being forgiveness and the spirit of forgiveness and him not wanting to see a, um, what's the word, a purge or a pogrom of mm. Serbian, Bosnia, uh, Bosnian Serbs. And again, you know, this is powerful, powerful embodiment of, you know, the highest prophetic ideals right on our doorstep in terms of it happening 20, mm. 30 years ago. Um, may Allah reward him and may mm. we, you know, aspire to, you know, uh, you know, embody those principles as well in whatever small way we can. But it's it's powerful. It's very powerful, I think. And, and you know, I think you've mentioned an excellent point about um, uh, th this idea that um, we read about the prophets, we read about the companions, but sometimes we need to see real life examples of them, of embodiments of it. Um, and no doubtably you find it amongst the scholarly class, right? But it's always something different when you see it in the realm of uh, outside of the scholarly class, when you start seeing celebrities, when you start seeing politicians really embody that. And I think mm -hmm. undoubtedly uh, uh, Alia uh, Izabegovic was one example. But what's, what's very interesting is in today's discourse, like, like today, when we look at somebody who is, not from the scholarly class, but somebody who really embodies the prophetic lifestyle. Um, the most prominent Muslim doing that today is actually a, uh, is actually a Western Muslim, which is Khabib, right? Khabib is from Russia, right? He again, he's he and that area historically, just you know, hundred years ago or so, was commun uh, uh, was uh, was being controlled by the communists. Right. So here's a Western Muslim who, again, is embodying these principles. And if you watch Joe Rogan or if you watch many of these other podcasts, they'll say, like, you know, this is a white Muslim. Mm. Right. They say, this is a white Muslim. And, you know, he deeply believes in his faith. 
So again, you know, uh, much of my work is I'm trying to break this this binary between the West being Christian and the East being uh, uh, Muslim and just this narrative between the two. And now we're seeing, like you mentioned, Dr. Abdul Hakim Arad, Western Muslim, right? Embodying yeah. the prophetic lifestyle. And so I think narratives like these, if they are really propagated correctly and being sent to the right people, they can really cause, you know, a cognitive dissonance for many people with their narrative of, you know, this clash between both these civilizations and a story, like you mentioned, of Alia Izabegovic. If that story was more well known, uh, people will know that here is a living example of a white Muslim. We need to tell the stories more and more, I guess. And I think, you know, this episode is one step towards doing that. But inshallah, I mean, I, I want to see, I don't know why there hasn't been movies made about him yet. In terms of Khabib, I've seen you met him. So when when's he going to be on the... When's he going to be on the podcast, inshallah? We're you know, working you, on you, it, inshallah. You mentioned something really important. I think we have a tendency sometimes when it comes to religion and da'wah especially to focus on certain ways of doing it. The unfortunate reality is in our age, Khabib can reach, you know, millions upon millions of people through any act that he does. And I think probably he's, his hands are tied to the extent that he can't just talk of openly all the time about religion because it's, I guess it's not his speciality, but through his example, I think he can reach so many people. And there's, it's also a huge responsibility as well, because if, if when they slip up, when celebrities slip up, everyone is seeing it. And I guess from what we spoke about in, on the last episode about behavior and behavior change, seeing celebrities and powerful people doing things has a big influence on the rest of people. Yeah. So Khabib is, yeah, may Allah protect him and preserve him and Amen. keep him on the right. And inshallah, we're able to amplify the message of the life of Ali Azitbegovic more and more. Because you know, you know, even 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 in preparation for this podcast, if you search up his name on YouTube, you're gonna get a documentary from Al Jazeera and like a, and a three minute clip from TRT World. That's it. Yeah. Everything yeah. else is gonna be in a different language. It's gonna be in Bosnian. It's gonna maybe it'll be in Turkish, but in English, there's nothing, absolutely nothing. And it makes sense as to why people don't know about him because there hasn't been that exposure, right? Yeah. The book the book is a very difficult book to read. But if you can mm. get through it, you can really get the jewels of the book. Sure, um, sure. So and there's, this, a, there's this also, is the beginning of it, of the process. There's also the autobiography here, which is published by the Islamic Foundation. It's very good. And like you said, Islam between East and West is, is quite difficult. This is a straightforward autobiography. Of course, it's a lot of jewels in there, but it's, it's a bit lighter reading, I think. Um, I was going to make a point, but it's, it's gone. SubhanAllah. <laughs> Yeah, it's gone. So just uh, if it comes back, you can share. But just as, as, as a point to close off on, um, the 20th century was a very difficult, one of the most difficult centuries in Muslim history. Uh, if not, arguably, perhaps maybe the most difficult. I mean, the entire Muslim world was rife with colonization, with imperialism, with fascism, with massacres everywhere you look, every Muslim country in the 20th century really has a massacre happen to them. Whether it be the Bosnian War, whether it whether it be um, in Syria with the Baathist parties and the massacres, whether it be in the subcontinent with the partition, uh, whether it be in West Africa with the colonization. Uh, everywhere you look in the Muslim world, there was these difficulties. But what's interesting is also within the 20th century in every land that these atrocities occurred there were always heroes there was always freedom fighters who stood up and who called to wake up the muslim psyche and although their many of their intentions was to focus on specifically their own land globally muslims and even and non-muslims all of humanity can take lessons from these people because Anytime somebody is embodying the prophetic principles, everybody will, uh, everybody can see that this is something that they can take from. And so Alia Izabegovic is one of those exemplars for us in the 20th century. Somebody who was focused primarily on the issues that were occurring in Bosnia and Yugoslavia at the time, but the lessons that can be taken from it should be taken from everyone. And so I think he is one of the few freedom fighters like people like Malcolm X, like Muhammad Ali, like Alama Iqbal, and so much, uh, Sheikh al-Islam, Mustafa Sabri, so many of these exemplars. And 
by telling their stories, we can really wake up the Muslim psyche. Because I'm sure most Muslims that you speak to who are now reading this academic literature and studying these very dense topics, most of the time you can trace their awakening to one freedom fighter. Like for me, oh, I, can trace, yeah. I, I, I can trace mine to Malcolm X. Like Malcolm Same. X really awakened me to another level. And all of these freedom fighters, all, the greatness that we see in them is all because they're embodying prophetic principles. So it's taken from the prophets. But because they've tried to exemplify it, it helps awaken the Muslim psyche. So what I'm wondering for you, Tamim, is who was that figure? Yeah, it was for me, it was Malcolm X. But as, as we're talking now, I'm thinking... Why do we, alhamdulillah, may we speak about him more and more, may we preach his message more and more, but why is he so well known and Ali Azadbegovic is much lesser known? Even though Ali Azadbegovic lived a longer life, you know, materially, you could say he accomplished more, he became the president, he protected his country during a, a, a brutal war, but there's very little out there about him. And I'm wondering why that might be. One of the things I've, I remember the point that I was going to make, and it does tie into this idea of freedom fighters. I see, you know, it's very easy. It, maybe it's a little bit even lazy to just keep making parallels, but subhanAllah, these things can be microcosms of wider phenomenon. And I think one of the other parallels from the Bosnian war is this constant narrative that tried to muddy the fact, you know, muddy the Bosnian resistance because it was Islamic. And there being a constant suspicion because fighters from Muslim parts of the world were coming and there was an Islamic character to the resistance. Ali Azadbegovic resisted it very much, but it's something that exists. Uh, you know, there's, there's just a natural suspicion. And I, I know, you know, we want to challenge the idea of clash of civilizations and that. But I think when it comes to this idea, of course, we've seen it uh, with Ukraine. And a lot of people were... A lot of friends and things i'm seeing on twitter people are getting really annoyed why are they why are they championing ukraine and they don't champion our causes and i could see the point and i could agree with it but i think my reaction was a little bit different in that what i wanted to do was okay they're doing you know they're looking after their cause we need to be doing the same with our cause and we need to be telling the story of our causes and protecting the dignity of our causes i think unfortunately you know you're talking about freedom fighters i think maybe bosnia might have been the last time even though there, you know, there was a, a, a narrative war over the Bosnian war, but I think since then the idea of Muslims traveling to other lands and protect, trying to protect or trying to participate in a war, it's an explosive topic. It's a completely loaded topic. There is little room for you know, reasonable discussion in it. But hopefully, hopefully the Ukrainian experience now can challenge that a little bit. And we can then learn from that, that there is right and wrong and there is... You know, there's times where people need to protect themselves. And Bosnia, I think, was it. The Bosnian war was a prime example of that. Um, the war came to them. They could, have, they, could have, they could have not resisted, but it would have probably been more devastating to them in the long run. They, they did resist. They didn't, like I said, I don't think anyone would say that they won, but they didn't lose. And they put in a, you know, a protective piece for their country. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, it's under threat now. May Allah protect it. And inshallah, the, the war, the proxy war doesn't spread to there, but it seems like it's lining lining up to, to, to that. And just as a note, kind of maybe tie in with what you said earlier, that people remember. Again, I spoke to a colleague, a different colleague, also a Bosnian colleague, maybe six months ago when things were heating up and it was in the news. And he basically said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're ready. We, 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 we're not going to forget. So he would have been... The, the other guy I spoke about was 16 at the time. This guy would have been at least 20. And he said, we're ready. You know, we're, gonna, we're ready to put down our work and go back and protect, protect our, our country. Inshallah, it doesn't come to that. But the situation there is, is quite difficult. Um, I've realized I've spoken for a bit there, so I'll, I'll zip it. No, no. I think, uh, and I think that's an excellent point to, uh, to cap off on. Um, it's just recognizing that this, this podcast was a podcast of history. But with everything that's happening, this might be Allahu Alam, but this could be perhaps a precursor to something that may happen, maybe in Bosnia or maybe elsewhere. Because history, they say, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And uh, the lessons, the principles that can take from here can be applied to any situation. 
in the world with any geopolitical situation. So with that, I think we'll wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us again, Tamim, uh, for an enlightening discussion. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners, all of our followers. Remember, you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, and on YouTube. Um, and you can take it with you on the go as well. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Tamim. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.